And that is enough. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. For those of you who haven't been here before, we've been doing a series in the book of Matthew. Matthew being the perspective of the writer Matthew on Jesus being the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And today we're going to take a look at a couple of different parts of Jesus' birth story in the book of Matthew, starting in chapter 2. Now we have skipped a little bit through this in in, uh, last week's message, Um, but let's take a look here. We're going to start with a look at the wise men, as it is recorded here in Matthew chapter 2. And he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler, who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed for Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem, and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. And now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. 
Now there's a lot of fear going on in this chapter, but this story is not necessarily about fear. This story we find from the very beginning starts with worship. Why did the wise men say that they sought for the young king? So that they might worship him. Now we all know that we're supposed to worship Christ, do we not? We're told that from a young age. Those of us who perhaps grew up in church, had parents who walked with the Lord, we're told we need to worship Christ. We need to worship God. And that's one of the reasons we come here. Because we're trying to worship Christ together as a body, as a church. However, many of us don't even know what worship is. If I were to ask you, I'm not asking you to answer me right now, but if I were to ask you, what is worship? What would you say? Are you drawing a blank? Are you trying to define worship? Some of us perhaps get a little too complicated when we're trying to think about what worship is. Well, worship is obedience, and I have to do this, and I have to do that, and I have to do this. I have this list of things that I must do in order to worship Jesus. But when you think about it, and this is something that I recently learned. Um, I took Greek class when I was in college. And when I was in, in, when I was in college and learning Greek, one of the words that we w- learned was the word for worship, because that comes up quite a bit in the New Testament. But all we were taught was that the word worship comes from the Greek word uh, proskuneo. And we just learned that proskuneo meant worship. But then I was thinking, not too long ago, that's not, that doesn't satisfy me, my curiosity. So I looked a little bit more into it, and I discovered that the word for worship that we find throughout the New Testament comes from the word proskuneo, meaning to kiss. To kiss toward somebody. Pros meaning toward, and kineo meaning to kiss. Now does that clear up everything for you now? Now I know what worship means. I gotta go kiss Jesus. <laughs> you know, some of us, some you know, you know, there are some people who hold a crucifix and they kiss it, um, and perhaps that's precisely where that practice comes from, from the actual word worship, which means to kiss. Historically, this is this is symbolic, as many words in the Greek language are. They show pictures. It's it's showing us a picture of what worship looks like. It's a, a picture of falling down on your face kissing the ground in front of a royal magistrate or majesty of some sort. Whether it's a servant to a king, servant to their master, it's the image that we're falling down on our face, whether we're kissing their feet, which was often done in the olden days, or kissing the ground in front of them. This was showing honor. It was paying homage. And it wasn't always done in a deistic manner, meaning towards God himself. Like I said, it was also done to kings and masters. Anything that had to do with a subordinate to somebody who was higher than him or her. And in Christ, we find we're not only supposed to give this reverential worship just to somebody who's more important than us, but we, in Christ, as we learn through Scripture, only give this reverential worship to one person, and that is God. That is God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is what the wise men from the East, we are told, came to do. They wanted to give worship to this new king. 
And we have to wonder then, how in the world did these people find out about this? They're not from Jerusalem. They're not from Israel. They're called Magi. And Magi, historically, was most likely just given to a small group of people. This wasn't, Magi weren't everywhere. Magi were given, the term Magi was given to a small group of people. These were Babylonian spiritualists who specialized in astrology. They were astrologers. They formed worship and forms of worship by looking up at the stars, by, by observing the seasons and um, they kept their eyes up into the stars, into the sky. And that's how they formed ritualism, paganism, all sorts of different religions were formed through astrological philosophers such as these magi. They weren't worshipers of the one true God necessarily. They sought their religion from the sky. And I find that to be interesting because these magi do come and they're brought to worship Jesus. And I find that to be interesting and I want to talk about that for a little while here because this is something that tells us a little bit about our God. He is one which we have talked to, talked to which we have talked together about. He is one who does not simply expect us to to come to him. Though he does, But first, God is the one who comes to us. We talked about that far more in depth when we were talking about Jesus being Emmanuel, our Jesus, or God with us, our Savior. He became our Savior in that he came to us, bringing us righteousness. And it's the same story with these wise men, or as the the Greeks calls them, the Magi. It was not that they just came to Jesus on their own accord. No, it was the same with them. God came to them first. He is the one who comes to us where we are and takes us where we are and brings us to where we need to be. He does not expect us to come from where we are on our own, on our own accord, according to our own volition, according to our own power, and force ourselves into where we need to be in order for him to to therefore receive us. That's completely against the story of Jesus. This is completely against the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's how we often live our lives, isn't it? We have to work harder so that we can be accepted by God. We have to do more. We have to make better lists of holy things that I must do so that I can come to God so that he can finally accept me. But we see in how God deals with these magi, these Babylonian spiritualists, that's not, that's not how this works. We just established Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, the Savior. And now we see a story of that actually playing out in the, in the wise men, in these magi. It's a, it's a story of where we read in the... In, in the scriptures that says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Literally, that means while we were still in the process of sinning, Christ came to us. That's not how you feel throughout the course of your everyday life, is it? You're struggling with these sins. 
you're struggling with patterns that you just want to get out of because you know that they're not God-honoring. And it's hard. We are still trapped in this body of flesh. It is still hard. Just because you may have come to Christ many years ago does not mean all of a sudden everything is easy. It doesn't mean that resisting temptation comes naturally now. No, we still need God's power to come to us. There was a day, many thousands of years ago, when all the people everywhere, the Bible says, had only evil thoughts and intentions continually. Remember that story is from? It's from the story of Noah and the flood, right? Mankind spent its days just simply eating, drinking, and making itself merry. Does that also sound familiar? Sounds also like today, right? And in that day, back in the days of Noah, God sent a flood that destroyed all of mankind. Saved Noah and his family, but now we actually live in a very similar day. And Is that what God did? Is that how God treated sin in our day? Did he send a flood of water to kill everybody? No, because in God's wisdom and making the time right for Christ to come to us in the very midst of our sinning, instead of condemning us, he sends us salvation. The flood of salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation. Not because God has changed, but because he has changed our landscape. He has made the time right for Christ to come to you, to me, to show you what salvation is. To show you, how can you be righteous? Back in the day, the time wasn't right for that in God's wisdom. Today, the time is right and we can be thankful that we live in such a time where God is not killing everybody who sins. Rather, he's saving them. In the midst of our sinning, he comes to us. And you see, for instance, in the case of the Magi, astrology is a form of divination that resulted in blasphemy, idolatry, all forms of false religion. But how did God come to the Magi? How did God show them the way? Do you remember? By sending them a star, the very form of their false worship. But that's the wisdom of God, isn't it? Because God didn't send them a star in such a way that caused them to continue on in their false worship, even though it was the same thing that they'd been looking to in their false worship for years, for decades perhaps. But God sends them a star, the very source of their paganism. And what happens though, because God did this thing? They came to Christ. Because of this star. See, God knows exactly where you're at. And God is an unconventional God. He is somebody that you and I do not really understand. If we think we understand God, we give ourselves way too much credit. Because God, in His infinite wisdom, knows precisely what you, or perhaps a family member of yours, needs in order to come to Christ. Not everybody needs the same thing. You probably don't need a star in the sky (laughs) that will lead you to Bethlehem so that you can find Christ. 
I'm just taking a guess here, but that's probably not how he's going to act in your life. I'm pretty confident in that, but you never know. God's wisdom is above me. God knows exactly what you, your family members, your friends, people that you grieve over, sin that you yourself grieve over in your own selves. He knows exactly what to do to bring you, to bring your family members, to bring your friends to Jesus Christ. And sometimes it looks like something that looks horrible. Sometimes it looks like sin. Just like God in this situation used the sin of these pagans to bring them to worship Jesus Christ. Now we, we like to put pictures and posters on the wall of this beautiful star in the sky and these, these wise men, usually there's a, it's a group of three, even though we don't know if that's the case or not. We know they gave three gifts, but we don't know that that means that there were just three people. And we see that star, and it's beautiful, and it is beautiful. And it's a beautiful story, but we have to realize, too, that this star was a form of worship for these wise men. And it was part of their reason why they needed to be saved and brought to Christ. And God used just that to bring them to Jesus Christ. And God is not above using your sin to open up your mind to see the truth, to illuminate the soul within you, to quicken you, to bring you to life. Because our God is a transforming God, taking something that perhaps was evil and using it for something good. We, we like to view a God who only dabbles with the good things, but we have a God who takes sinners like you and me and makes us righteous, right? Thank God for that. Because if God only deals with holy things, then you and I have no hope. Correct? You and I have no hope if God is only interested in communicating with, working with, looking upon unholy things. Now God is in the business of taking unholy things, redeeming them and making them righteous things. That's why Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. He came to you and me so that he could bring you righteousness, so that he could make an unholy thing while they're still in the midst of their sinning and call them out of that and make them pure, make them holy. That's what he wants. And why? Why did he do that? Well, we can see way back when, because it was written and we've talked about this before, through Abraham's seed, which we've determined is Christ, prophetically speaking, through Abraham's seed, all the world will be blessed. God came, sent Jesus Christ, took upon the form of a man so that he could bless you and me. He did not take upon us his sin in his taking upon himself of flesh. No, that was done at the cross where he took upon himself the sin. He did not commit sin of his own. He did not himself become unrighteous. No. He came in the, my form, lived a perfect life, following the law perfectly, so that he could be a proper sacrifice for you and me, so that you and I could be made righteous through his sacrifice, condemning sin in the flesh. So that we may not more not, may no longer live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit that he awoke within us. 
And it's also written that Christ is the end of the law, both its blessings and its curses. Which blessings and curses were only supposed to supplementally foretell of the coming Messiah. And he did away with those things for everybody who believes, whether Jew or Gentile, the Bible says. And here we see God himself not coming to us to bring us righteousness and salvation and simplicity, but in his own boundless manner. We prefer the means of evangelism to look like knocking on a few doors, leaving some tracks, having a few conversations in a cafe, inviting some kids to vacation Bible school. Now that looks clean and neat, but God is not into clean and neat. He makes us clean, but not through necessarily through clean and neat methods. Sometimes the method by which he wins our souls is a very messy one, a very distasteful one. Because God, God is not intimidated by your mess. He's not afraid of your mess. No, he understands your mess. That's part of the reason Jesus came in the flesh. So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest, acquainted with grief. He understands where you're coming from. He understands your mess. He's seen it. He dwelt among it. Part of the reason he came in the flesh is so that he could know you. So he could know your mess. Enter into it and die for it. And now, though your mess remains, he can use that mess to reconcile you to God. To redeem you, to make you one of his own. And we think, wait, this sounds irreverent. This sounds compromising. But you know what? That's the thing about God's transformative nature. He takes something that looks irreverent. He takes something that looks compromising and accommodating to the world. And he turns a person around with it so that they now accommodate God. So that that person now is turning their back on their past. So that person is now compromising everything they knew before and now adopting the ways of God, receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not forming their own righteousness, which is the way that we usually like to, to go about things. No, I've got to change myself. I've got to go seek my own righteousness. No, that's, that's the law. That's something that Jesus Christ tore down. Because the law was only there to, tell, to show you that you're incapable of seeking righteousness on your own. And now since Christ came and brought us righteousness, we no longer need the law to teach us that. Now that he's forgiven all of that sin, that sin is obsolete. Because now Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, teaches us through the righteousness that he's given us on the cross. And in a sense, this, this story about God coming to us in our own plight of sin introduces the final prophecies that are here in chapter 2 surrounding Christ's birth. In verses 13, we read this already. Let me read it again. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this kind of seems like a random prophecy. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Why in the world 
did Jesus need to be called out of Egypt? I mean, if that prophecy wasn't there, nobody knew about anything like that, that story didn't happen, would that, would that unfold the gospel and make it irre- irrelevant? Not necessarily. But the Lord sends us this prophecy of Jesus Christ. He in- includes this into the coming of the Messiah for a particular reason that is very closely associated with this story that we just learned from the Magi. God coming into our world, finding us where we're at. It's interesting to note that this prophecy of Jesus being called out of Egypt comes from Hosea. And in the midst of this prophecy, in Hosea, God is not actually talking about a Messiah. God is talking about Israel. He is talking about how disappointed he was in Israel, how God drew them out of Egypt so that he could make them his beloved child, only for them to then turn their backs on him. I mean, that's what Hosea was talking about in where this prophecy is coming from, that he's disappointed in Israel. God loved them like a father loves his children. He saved them from slavery and sure defeat only for his people to turn, his back on, turn their back on him. That's what Hosea was talking about. That doesn't sound very prophetic. But this ends up finding itself in the list of Messianic prophecies. How? Because Christ is well pleased to associate with his people and their weaknesses. You know, prophecies have both a practical fulfillment and a prophetic fulfillment. Okay, practically speaking, yeah, Israel was brought out of Egypt. It's recounting the story of the Exodus. But it also had prophetic intent, telling of the future, that was not necessarily apparent when it was being written. Prophecies are very much like this, and we've already seen this several times just in the account of Christ's birth. But the angel that talked to Joseph could have very easily told Joseph to take Mary and Jesus, here in Matthew chapter 2, to a number of different villages where Herod wasn't going to touch. Why did he tell them to take him to Egypt? so that he could create this prophecy. Because he's entering himself into the story of his people. Abraham's family fled to Egypt because a famine was about to destroy them. That's how Israel ended up in Egypt in the first place, back in the day, before the Exodus. That's how they became slaves. They went to Egypt because there was a famine. They were already in the Promised Land. They weren't Israel yet, but they were in the Promised Land. But then they had no food. They were going to die if they did not flee the promised land. So they came to Egypt where they knew there was food. And they just stayed there. And then God drew them out after several hundred years of being slaves. I mean, that's the, story, that's the very beginning of how that story entered. And now Jesus is entering in a likewise manner. If he didn't flee the promised land and go to Egypt, he was going to be killed. So he went to Egypt so that he could be safe from Herod's wrath. Because Herod was a vengeful king. He was all about himself. He heard about this other king that was going to turn the allegiance of people away from him. So he's going to go kill Jesus, even if it took killing every single child in that area of Bethlehem, the Bible says. He killed every single child under two years old in order to get to this new king. He is vengeful. So Jesus, so the angel told Joseph, take your family, go to Egypt until I come and tell you that you can come back again. So he's entering into the story of Israel's past. 
even though that story includes much, much weakness. And then we see in verse 18, after Herod kills all the children in Bethlehem and in the surrounding regions, we see another prophecy coming out here, a prophecy that the parents of those children that died probably prefer weren't there. It says in verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And this comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 15 to 20. And this this is a prophecy about the mercy that God would bring his children and restore them. The people had suffered and they had wept, but God would turn their mourning into rejoicing by replacing that rejoicing with a reward, that mourning with a reward. Let me just read that real quick so it makes a little bit more sense. You can turn there as well. Jeremiah chapter 31. Isaiah 31, 15 to 20 says, Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children should come back to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me and I was chastised. Like an untrained bull, restore me and I will return. For you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. See what we see here. The prophecy is about Israel. They were being chastised by the Lord for their sin, cast into exile, but not without the promise that the Lord would still be faithful to them. And then Matthew is using this story as prophetic about what would occur during the birth of the Messiah. Children, innocent children being slaughtered. But... As grievous as that is, as despicable as that is, and how we might, we might wonder how in the world could God allow something like that to happen. Through that, we see the mercy of God still on display. Because this only happened, why? Because Jesus came in fulfillment of God's mercy to have mercy on the world. To be a blessing to the world. Evil people do evil things, do they not? Evil Herod did something incredibly evil. But this does not turn away the love of God from the people that he has come to save. According to the prophecy, God would reward the people above and beyond what a just retribution would call for. You know, if somebody takes something from you, You expect them to restore what they took. But in this case, when God sent us Jesus, even though we deserve every single bit of our judgment and have no way of repaying God for what we owe Him because of our sin, He, through the forgiveness of sins, does not just take away our sin and send us on our way. Everything's good. 
fine. Just be about your business. I've forgiven you. Go enjoy your life. No, instead of that, he does not just send us on our way. He makes us his own beloved children. He makes us heirs of a kingdom that was previously reserved for God and his angels. But now we get to be rulers in that kingdom in the future. Because not only did Jesus forgive us of our sins, but he also reconciled us and adopted us into God's family. So we're not just sent on our way. Go live your life. Have fun. Your sins are forgiven. Good riddance. (laughs) That's not what God says. God says, no. I forgive you and I make you my child. The child of the cosmic king of the universe. Now you deserve, because of your righteousness gained through Jesus Christ, you don't deserve it because of your own accord, you deserve it because of Christ. Now you deserve everything that I have to offer. Now you deserve the whole kingdom. Because I sent Jesus Christ. Yes, there was much weeping. Yes, there was much mourning. Jesus himself did his own weeping and mourning through this story. And through that, we see the mercy of God revealed to us. But the prophecies don't end here. There's still yet another that we shall speak of. And this is found in verses 19 through 23, which I'm not going to read all those verses for the sake of time, but it recounts how Herod dies. So the angel comes back to Joseph and says, okay, now you can go back to the land of Judah because it's safe now. The the one who sought the life of the child is dead. He's gone. So Joseph takes his family, but then he hears that a... uh, The son of Herod is now reigning, and he's still kind of afraid. So because of that fear, he takes his family to Nazareth. Now, Mary was from Nazareth. We see that in the book of Luke, that Mary, that's where she was from, Nazareth. But because of Joseph's fear still, he did not return to where they were in Bethlehem. He kind of takes a detour and goes to Nazareth. But all of this, so that it could be fulfilled, it says, in verse 23... And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, there's something interesting about this prophecy that you need to understand here. Now, some of you have Bibles that have cross-references. And perhaps your Bibles are better than my Bibles. (laughs) I know that sounds funny. But if you have cross-references, look there and see if there's a cross-reference to an Old Testament passage. In my Bibles that have cross-references, there is nothing. Usually, if there's a prophecy, there will be a cross-reference back to the Old Testament showing you where that prophecy is coming from. It says that in verse 6, Micah 5, 2. It says that in verse 15 about, about calling out of Egypt, Hosea 11, 1. But here, when it says, he shall be called a Nazarene, it doesn't have a cross-reference to, to anything. Now, why would that be? Well, I'll tell you. And perhaps you have a study Bible that tells you. This, action, this, this statement, he shall be called a Nazarene, isn't in the Bible. Not word for word. There's no quote, unquote, he shall be called a Nazarene in the Old Testament. So is this wrong? Is he adding to Scripture? No. This comes from a teaching in a couple different passages. In Isaiah, Isaiah 11, verse 1 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots. What does that have to do with Nazareth? Well, Nazareth, the word Nazareth, 
comes from a word nester, which means branch. Now that kind of makes a little bit more practical sense to us because that's where we get the term nest, where a bird makes a nest. What does a bird use? Branches. Same, same concept here. Nazareth means branch. And that's a fulfillment of the prophecy here. There shall, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Now again, here's an example of a prophecy that wasn't necessarily very clear in the time that it was stated. In Isaiah 11, verse 1, he's talking, just talking about a descendant of David. But now we see that that is Jesus Christ being the branch. He is going to grow up um, in the city of Nazareth. Now, this thought continues in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, which says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Now, was Jesus incredibly beautiful? Was he incredibly appealing? Now, he was, he is, to those of us who come to him by faith. But really, the, t the idea of Nazareth goes deeper still. And it finds itself in another prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, which we'll get to in a second. But remember when Philip comes to Nathanael saying, Nathanael, I found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. How does Nathanael respond? Do you remember? He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nazareth was a town that nobody thought anything of. It was a place that nothing special ever happened. It was just a small agricultural town where people just... They farmed and did nothing else. Nobody cool came from Nazareth. Nobody in Nazareth ever did anything cool. So Nathaniel said, and it, and it had apparently developed a reputation for just being simple, backward, podunk town. And it says, in Isaiah chapter 53, here, turn there real quick. Just turn there. Let's look at this together. Who has believed our report? And to whom was the arm, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Again, referring to this branch. And as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And we, when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Now, does that sound like it's in reference to some guy who has this amazing report throughout the land? Now, we, ought, we like to think of Jesus that his whole life was this awesome life lived for the glory of God, but the first 30 years of his life, there's nothing going on. Only in the last three do we really see Jesus coming forth as this profound powerful Messiah. Nazareth doesn't just mean branch, but in the eyes of the people and in the eyes of prophecy, Nazareth means insignificant. Jesus would not be significant. He would not come in significance. See, the Jews, they preferred Isaiah 4.2, that the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. 
And they formed their entire theology of the Messiah, that the Messiah would come as this glorious, triumphant king who would restore the glory of Israel, bring back their national heritage of being God's chosen people, and make them amazing again. But yet they forgot, Isaiah chapter 53, that the Messiah, when he came, he's, it's not going to be obvious that he's a king. There's not going to be anything special about him. He's not going to be born to a royal family in Jerusalem. He was born to a family in the line of David, but not a family that had any special significance. Joseph was a carpenter, was he not? They lived in Nazareth, a nowheresville town. People couldn't, that's one of the reasons that people would not accept Jesus. Because he was not a glorious king who was overcoming their foes, the Romans, and raising up national zeal for Israel. No, but we see that, according to Isaiah 53, that he had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. And this speaks of the Messiah's entrance into the world. The whole world did not see Christ's coming as this amazing event. He was raised in Nazareth, a very private town off the beaten path. But even once he was, became recognized as a rabbi and a prophet even, his fellow Nazarenes didn't accept it. How could this man who grew up here be the Messiah? We saw him growing up. We know his brothers and sisters. Even his brothers and sisters didn't accept the fact that he was the Messiah when he began his earthly ministry at the age of 30. How could that be if the first 30 years of Jesus' upbringing were amazing and profound? If he was constantly doing amazing things, it would have been easy for people to understand that this was the Messiah, but it was not easy for the people who knew Jesus the best to accept that he was the Messiah. Why? Because he did not come with any form of com or comeliness. He did not come in a manner that would make everybody desire him. He wasn't as impressive as we'd like to think he was, and that sounds blas blasphemous, but this is what was prophesied. He didn't have a magnanimous personality and a passion to overthrow the Romans and lead Israel into nationalistic glory. That's not how he came. And notice in Isaiah chapter 53 that it wasn't... I mean, this is a prophecy about Jesus and his coming. Okay? And I want you to understand this. That Jesus came and dwelt among us and he entered into our scene so that he could bring us out of it. Okay? He became one with us. We, who are insignificant. That's why he came like that. Because not only did he come into the scene of Israel, being brought out of Egypt, just as they were, entering into their weakness, he entered into our weakness, being insignificant, no power. The Bible says that he cast off his power when he came and took on the flesh. He cast it out so that he could be fully one with you and me. Yeah, he's God. I'm not telling you to not believe that Jesus is God. But I'm telling you, the Bible tells us that when Jesus came, he cast off his significance because he wanted to dwell among you and me. He wanted to be just like you and me. That's what he wanted. And that's why he came. Because if he wasn't like you and me, then he wouldn't be an appropriate sacrifice for you and me. So in order for him to be an appropriate sacrifice for you and me, 
he had to cast off that significance. He said he did not come to do his own will. He came to do the will of the Father. Just like we're called to do. In every way, shape, and form, he came into this world to look like you and me. And look in Isaiah chapter 53. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And he was despised and we did not esteem him. Okay, we like to talk about how other people reject Christ. We like to talk about how everybody else has the problem. Everybody else is wrong. But what does it say here? He's talking about the people of God. He's talking about the chosen people of God that did not receive him. He's talking about his own people who rejected him, who didn't think anything of him. It's not about all those other false religions out there. It's about you and me. This is, the scripture's talking to you. It's not talking to them. The Holy Scriptures are talking to you who are sitting here listening to this message who say you're a Christian, who say, yeah, I love God, yeah, I worship Christ. But how do you know that you esteem Him highly as your Savior? How do you know that you truly worship Christ? Do you, how do you know that you, in your soul at least, fall down on your face and kiss the ground before the Messiah? While it is prophesied here that it is the God's own people who are the ones who do not even recognize him. Do you recognize the real Jesus? Do you understand that when Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. How many of you realize that that wasn't talking to the unsaved? That was talking to the church of Laodicea. But the people had shut out Jesus. Even though they're a church. Even though they're the people of God. Jesus is still trapped on the outside. Saying, knocking on the door. Let me in. You've shut me out. You've rejected me. You come and you worship and you read the scriptures and you talk about how great Jesus is. But at the same time, you've shut me out of your life. You've shut me out of your service. You've shut me out of your week. He's talking to the people of God. It's not just the skeptics who are rejecting Christ. It's you everyone, and me, every one of us who hears the voice of the Lord calling to us with conviction and yet continues to walk in the way that seems right unto you. It is not just the unsaved that see Christ as uncomely or, undesi or an undesirable king of kings. No, it is you and me who say we love God, but still continue to return to our homes, return to our day after hearing and reading the word, and never come to a state of repentance or worship within your own soul. Would never kiss the ground before Christ. Never see the word of God and go and do it. When God says, remember the poor, do you go and do you serve the poor? Or do you say, nope, not today. I'm going to close the door to this because I don't want to hear about that. Just like we do when, you know, somebody, you know, in a shirt and a tie with a little name tag comes to our door and says, hey, we have a new gospel for you to understand. And we shut the door and say, no, I'm not interested. But we do that to Jesus. 
when we go to His Word, when we come to His fellowship, and leave those places exactly the same as when we came. We treat, God, we treat Christ like a false teacher that we want nothing to do with. Because we don't want His truth. We don't want His way. We want to return to our own way and do what we want with our life. It is the people of God who have turned their eyes on Jesus Christ. It is the people of God who must be ashamed that we still continue, even though we have been enlightened into the truth, but yet we continue to walk according to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's understandable that the unbelievers do that because they have not heard the truth. They have not known the way. But we do. And yet we still continue to turn our back on Jesus Christ. Who is the more despicable because of that? How many of us consider ourselves to be Christ's body? Still go about our own business. No worship. No thankfulness to God. Absolutely zero submission. Except for the submission that is convenient for us. You know, my family would reject me if I, you know, forsook the assembly. My family would reject me if I had a child out of wedlock. My family, you know, the government would put me in jail if I killed somebody. I'm not going to do those things because that would be inconvenient for me. We don't do it for the fear of God. No. Who is your Lord? As we, dwell on, as we dwell on Jesus the Nazarene, we must meditate on this. Is Jesus significant to me? He came in insignificance so that He could be like us, and then one day He was glorified so that now His glory is on full display, so now we can bow our knees and worship Him as our Savior. How do I know that He's significant to me? When you have a significant other in your life, do you ignore them on a regular basis? Except for one day a week? No, you give them your primary attention and your affection. Not a moment goes by when you're not obsessing over them. Some people call this the honeymoon phase. And this is what Jesus meant when he charged yet another church in the book of Revelation for leaving their first love. They had moved on from deep fellowship in the Spirit that they had when they were new to the faith and deeply in love with Christ and his people. But then things grew stale, Christ became insignificant. No longer was he the Lord of glory, but rather he was demoted to being just some Nazarene once again. Nobody important. And it's evident in how you talk, how you work, how you deal with life issues throughout the week. And it was prophesied that it would be so in Isaiah 53. This is not a smudge on the perfection and the glory of Christ. No, it's a blemish on you and me. Okay, Those of us who find Christ to be unworthy of our deepest and most sincere affections. When we have seen, when we have learned of the glory of God through Jesus Christ, we know His righteousness, we've received His righteousness, but yet we still treat Him as nothing special. For those who truly come to saving faith in Christ and are shown by the Spirit how mightily He has worked out our righteousness When we approach life thus, that Jesus is just some Nazarene, insignificant, nothing good comes from there. This reveals that our dark hearts have still remained unillumined by the Spirit. Because when we are illuminated to the glory of God by the Holy Spirit, we cannot help 
but decrease our will as his increases in our life. When his presence enters into our consciousness, it is unlikely that we will be able to continue to build our own house. We will impulsively hand the blueprints over to Jesus, for he has become the chief engineer of our lives. So who is Jesus to you? He came to us in an unimpressive fashion, so that only those who truly come to him by faith and receive him thus and find him to be, will find him to be beautiful and glorious. It's only by faith that we see that. To the rest of the world, he's just some Nazarene. Nothing special. I don't need to follow that. Nothing good's ever come from that, right? That's what the world says. But those of us who truly come to Christ, no. Through faith, we see the beauty and the glory of Christ. To the eyes of the flesh, it's just some other guy who said some good things. And that's how we... Are you treating him like that? I'm just going to ask you that. Are you treating him like that? Some guy who said some good things, but thanks a lot, but I'm going to carry on my own life, my own way. Has the Father shown you the glory of Jesus? Then will you lay aside your hesitations and simply bow down your will to his and receive him as your Lord and Savior? And I'm not just talking to those who never considered becoming a Christian. I'm talking to this church too. Talking to everyone here. Perhaps you've prayed a prayer because you know that you don't want to go to hell. So if I have to pray this prayer in order to get out of hell, then great, I'll do it. I'm talking to you. Have you never submitted yourself, your will to the Lord? Have you never kissed the ground before, before Christ in worship, in reverence to him? Please do so. The Bible says elsewhere, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Worship him. Give him yourself. Bow down yourself to him. And you will see the beauty and the glory of what he is and what he has to offer. Lord, send us your spirit. I pray we would not be afraid of what is ahead if we are to give everything to you. Whether you call us to sell everything and give it to the poor and follow Christ. Whether that means to go to some foreign country. Whether that just means to stay here. Yet, open my mouth with the glory of the gospel and reform into the image of his son. To let you do your work on us. Rather than saying, nope, nope, thanks. I mean, that's great and all. Thanks for the forgiveness and everything. But I'm just going to take it from here, Lord. Lord, I pray that Jesus would not just be some Nazarene, but Lord, that he would be the Lord of glory. Forgive us for our irreverence, for not truly worshiping him. And I pray that going forth, that we would have this spirit of worship. In Jesus' name, 